2: Good evening. On where the road takes me this evening, we bring you the programme in what has been a series of three, entitled Inspiration from the Past. The theme of all three programmes has been not just wrongful incarceration, but how the incarcerated dealt with their plight. The idea for the programmes came from two regular contributors, Sister Bernadette Maria in the Convent of Mercy in Charleville and Philippe Egan and Carroll, and I thank them both for their intuition. For me, this evening's story is actually two rolled into one. The story of Tommy Reichenthal, who gives me his traumatic account of being imprisoned by the Nazis as a nine-year-old boy in Bergen-Belsen. But just how did a nine-year-old boy escape the gas chambers, disease, starvation, and bitter cold temperatures? Well, that's where story two comes into play, because it's doubtful if he would have survived without the courage, mental strength, perseverance, and optimism of three powerful women. His mother Judith, his aunt Margot, and his grandmother Rosalia. The latter, unfortunately, didn't make it in Bergen-Belsen, but her legacy was very much part of his survival. As well as mental resolve, Lady Luck also had a huge part to play in the survival of all, including his older brother and cousin. Author of the book, I Was a Boy in Belsen, Tommy Reichenthal brings the three-part series Inspiration from the Past to a close this evening. Thank you for joining us. Step right in. Tomy Rykenthal was born in 1935 in the village of Meresista in Czechoslovakia, now Slovakia. Tomy's parents, Judith and Arnold, were a farming family, and his early years were carefree and loving. The village, with a church, shop and pub, was beautiful and peaceful. The shop, which was owned by Tomy's grandfather, stocked everything, and if they hadn't got it, they would do their utmost to get it for you. It was here also that people came for advice. But the peace and unity of this village was about to change dramatically. Dr. Joseph Tyso, a Catholic priest, became the leader of the Hlinka Party in 1938, and then the Prime Minister and President of newly independent Slovakia. From here on, it was clear that the Jews were not going to be part of this new independent state. The publication of the Jewish Codex in September of 1941, which removed civil rights and property from Jewish people, had basically sealed their fate. Slovakia was now basically an arm of Nazi Germany and became the only nation to actually pay the Nazis to remove the Jews from their country with the promise that they would not be allowed to return. The shop owned by Tomy's grandfather was taken from him and closed in May of 1941. He never recovered from the humiliation. Jekeskel and Katarina Reichenthal were arrested in August of 1942 and sent to Auschwitz. They were never seen again. In fact, Tomy lost 35 members of his family to the Holocaust. He believes that lack of leadership and organizational skills on the part of the Jewish people at the time was a huge problem.
3: When the time began to be... Dangerous before the deportation, and people knew it, something is going on. Nobody knew what to do, and uh, that was a terrible tragedy because there was no uh, proper organization. The Jewish people were living apart in each village, maybe one family, two family. In our village, we were the ones, but there were not a two families. One were converted, and there was some other accountant that worked for a firm, very Jewish, but um, that was all. So nobody was prepared for what is going to happen in
2: 1942. When it was happening, of it was too late. Once the Jewish Codex had been published, the Reichenthal's noticed that some who had been their neighbors and friends in the village up to now were no longer so. In fact, one in particular, who used to run errands for his grandfather at the shop, was becoming increasingly hostile, especially after he had joined the Helinke Guard. It was only after the war had ended that Tomy discovered how devious this person had been
3: one person that was doing his doctorate in Slovakia. He happened to research the archives in Nitra and suddenly he found all this report that this uh, Nedelka, Otto Nedelka was his name, was sending to his superior telling them why not taking these parasite like Reichenthal, our father's name, the, the madam. My brother's name, my name. uh, all. I have uh, these copies of these documents. And it was just incredible how these letters were written. And in fact, uh, this man used to be, I mean, he was a... kid when we lived in in the late 30s and then he of course became more adult and joined the Linka Guard. But he used to do messages for my grandfather and my grandfather used to give him sweets, you know, to doing it. And suddenly he turned uh, against us. But he didn't show it in face. He, He did it behind our back. We didn't even know. We only discovered it after
2: the war. A question often asked about the Holocaust. Why didn't the Jews convert to Catholicism? And if they did, would it have saved them? However, in many occupied countries, racial legislation restricted, banned, or did not recognize the conversion of Jews. Tommy Reichenthal is of the opinion that conversion would not have helped his people at all.
3: No, no, it, it didn't. In fact, we, my father and my mother, they were very friendly with the, a priest in the village uh, whose name was Ladislav Harangozo. So he was a very good uh, person. But many... Uh, priests in churches, uh, they were the ones that were spreading the propaganda of the government because at the time it it wasn't like today you could get news uh, uh, through television, radio and newspaper, especially in the rural area. We had no connection to the outside world. So... The priests were the people that spread the uh, news and of course the propaganda and they were the ones that uh, were preaching in the churches that uh, all the fault that Slovakia was suffering uh, economically and whatever was going wrong was fault of the Jews. And the Slovak people, they were uh, dedicated Catholics. They are still today, you know, they would dress up. Sunday was a special day going to the church. And they listened to their priest. And eventually the people began to believe all these lies that were spread and of course the hatred against the Jews.
2: Because of the importance placed upon the job that Tommy's father held, he managed to avoid arrest. But this was only temporary. His time would soon come. The Catholic priest in the village was on friendly terms with Tommy's father, and after his suggestion of conversion was declined by the Rykantals, this brave priest set about organising a false identity and false papers for Tommy, his brother and their mother. They decided to leave the village and head for Bratislava, but there were guards everywhere looking for the resistance movement and, of course, the Jews. Eventually, the Reichentals were stopped and questioned. And this is where Lady Luck engineered a miraculous intervention.
3: The resistance movement suddenly dispersed, and they wanted to catch these people, and of course they wanted to catch the Jews. So any movement, uh, you went on a horse cart or bus or train everywhere at station crossroad there would be guards stopping you and they wanted to see your ID and so when we decided to leave the village because we didn't know who was our friend and who was not a friend that we can be betrayed we decided to leave and on this journey we come to this uh, crossroad where the train was uh, going to the city and of course there was a guard and they stopped us it was uh, early in the morning and um he stopped us and he asked for our ID. We had uh, at the time false IDs which uh, the priest provided us with, and he was looking, looking around. and obviously there was a little difference. we, we would dress a different way that the woman, the village woman, everything, and suddenly he said, "You are Jews." And, of course, he wanted to arrest us. And uh, luckily, he gave us already the ID to my mother, because it was only my mother, my brother, and myself. And the man from the farm that always used to take us in the car, when we went to visit friends and everything, he realized what would happen if uh, he would arrest us. So he just gave a... big thing onto the horse, he hit the horse and we just shot forwards. I remember we properly sort of uh, flew backwards when this horse uh, took up and we thought any moment the soldier will shoot after us. (laughs) I I think the soldiers didn't have any ammunition because I think the government was, they were afraid of the soldiers as well. Of course, they didn't shoot. And thankfully at the time, we didn't have a mobile phone. So these soldiers couldn't notified anybody in the front that, look, there is this uh, uh, horse and cart with the shoes, and he brought us to the station, and uh, we, we had our false paper with the thing, so when we were stopped, we showed the paper at the train station, to we got away with it.
2: No matter where you were, or how expertly prepared your false identities and documents were, there was always the chance that somebody somewhere would report you to the authorities for various personal reasons and benefits. And it happened to the reichentals They were arrested, herded onto a train, and kept like animals on a long and arduous journey. Originally destined for Auschwitz, the train was diverted to Bergen-Belsen. It's hard to imagine it, but Lady Luck had intervened again. Leon Bass was a 20-year-old soldier among those who were first to arrive at the camp to liberate it. From the short film, The Liberators and Survivors, The First Moments, it's very evident that even today the memories of what he witnessed still haunt him. I can never forget that day, because when I walked through that gate, I saw in front of me what I call The Walking Dead. I saw human beings, human beings that had been beaten, had been starved, had been tortured. They had been denied everything. They had skeletal faces with deep set eyes. Their heads had been clean shaved and they were standing there and they were holding on to one another just to keep from falling. I saw the clothing of little children, the little children that didn't survive. Up against the wall, there were mounds of clothing. I saw the caps, sweaters, the stockings, the shoes, but I never saw a child. When the Raikentals arrived in Bergen-Belsen, their first impressions were exactly the same as those of liberating soldier Leon Bass much later. They didn't realize it at the time, but they were lucky to be in Bergen-Belsen. At least here, they would be afforded a slim chance of survival, whereas in Auschwitz, this was not an offer.
3: Nobody could imagine a a civilized person at the time that what people were doing to other people. It was just that we saw these uh, skeleton walking around uh, very, very slowly. They were mortally sick. They were walking aimlessly, and um, occasionally they would fall down and never get up. They, they died where they fell. As it happened, we were uh, in the part of Belgium-Belgium where the hospital was, and this why we saw these people walking around they were in the hospital they didn't get any medication for being cured or anything because uh, Bergen-Belsen was a detention camp and as you mentioned up to about December we arrived there in uh, November but in December the Things changed in Belgian Belgium because it was taken over by the SS. And uh, with uh, the SS, a new commander
2: came who was uh, Joseph Kramer. On this program, we speak to Tommy Reikenthal who, as a nine-year-old boy, was sent to the Nazi detention center Bergen-Belsen with five members of his family. The story of how a nine-year-old boy survived the gas chambers, disease, hunger, brutality, and freezing temperatures should be an inspiration to all. The basis for these programmes were suggested by listeners who felt, and rightly so, that anybody who was finding COVID-19 and its associated restrictions and regulations difficult to bear would hopefully discover the mental resolve to see it through when reflecting on the mental resolve of the Rykenthal family. Their story continues in Part 2 of Where the Road Takes Me in a few moments, right here on C103. Coming right up. Part 2. This three-part series, entitled Inspiration from the Past, was suggested by regular contributors to the program. These three stories tell of courage, mental resolve, and the strong will to survive and be set free. For those finding lockdown, isolation, or cocooning difficult, inspiration can be gained from all three stories, even though outlining completely different circumstances. Well, not long after the Reichenthalts arrived at Bergen-Belsen, there was a change of Camp Commandant. Commandant Joseph Kramer of the SS would now be responsible for thousands of prisoners at the camp. But not long before the British advanced and liberated Bergen Belsen, Kramer wrote a letter to the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, asking for more food because the 60,000 prisoners in the camp were starving.
3: Sent a letter to Himmler. He said, "I have disease in the camp. It is overwhelmed because many prisoners from Auschwitz, over thirty-five thousand, come to Bergen-Belsen, Belgium, Belgium, so that the camp was overcrowded. He couldn't cope with it, and even the little food that we got was not enough. So he couldn't even bring more food because it didn't have enough lorries, and there were about sixty thousand prisoners as in bergen person. So he, he wrote this letter to Himmler and asking him to send him couple of lorries that he can bring some food yes these people are starving, they are dying. So this letter it's the only evidence that he ever had any inkling to save some people or something. I actually copied their letter and I, I think I put it in my book. And with this letter he thought that he can prove that he actually wasn't the animal that he was, you know.
2: So here was an SS officer asking for more food for his starving prisoners. Was it possible, was it just possible that Joseph Kramer had a kind heart? Or, was it that he knew the game was up and wished to give his captors, whenever they arrived and whoever they might be, the impression that he actually cared about those incarcerated under his control? By doing so, he would escape a war trial and possible execution. But Tomi Reichenthal wasn't fooled at all by Kramer's so-called act of kindness. After all, he had been camp commandant at Auschwitz prior to arriving at Bergen-Belsen, and you certainly did not get such a command because of your angelic qualities. <laughs>
3: Just uh, for pleasure. They used to have a little patio over the kitchen. And when some of the inmates come and wanted to steal some food because they were starving, we just would pick them up and shoot. And used to hear these shots being fired. And uh, when we had our roll call next day, we would see three or four bodies lying around. And he deliberately left them there because he wanted us to see that if you do something that you're not supposed to do, this is what will happen to you. One time he went uh, and he caught uh, uh, three or four prisoners. They managed to get into the store where the potato was. And he just took his gun out of his uh, the, the place that they hold. Gun, and it's a so he just shot So he was a very cruel man. <laughs>
2: When it came to brutality at Bergen-Belsen, it certainly wasn't male domain. Women guards and officers could easily match their male colleagues when it came to ill treatment. A prime example would be Irma Gris, an SS guard at the Nazi concentration camps at Ravensbruck and Auschwitz, and now warden at the women's section at Bergen-Belsen. Brutality was second nature to Gris, being pure evil came easy for her. Greece was known as the Beautiful Beast, and yet she was only 22 years of age when she and Joseph Cramer were hanged for their war crimes.
3: Yeah, that's right. She comes from Auschwitz. Uh, Her crimes were really committed in Auschwitz. In Berlin-Belsen, she still uh, beat, uh, there is evidence, of course, I never, never saw her for anything like this, but there is evidence that she beat some of the prisoners when she caught them. You see, there were barbed wire separating some of the parts from the main camp, and it was prohibited to come to the barbed wire and speak. The woman speaking to the man, or vice versa. And she couple of times
2: she caught
3: somebody doing this, and uh, she beat them up. And she was a sadist. In in Auschwitz, she committed a lot of uh, crimes. She killed people, and she had this dog that uh, if she thought somebody did uh, something that she didn't like, she would let the dog onto the person. And you know this is very cruel. But in Belgian person, I. I remember one time she came to our hut just to, I suppose, see children, because in Auschwitz the children were sent to the gas chamber. And um, everybody sort of knew, because there were a lot of people from Auschwitz that come to Bergen-Belsen, as I mentioned, 35,000. And they would uh, point out who this woman was, Irma Grins, uh, of course. Uh, she was one of the people among the 12 people that were executed. After the war, uh, the guard and the commander and uh, other people, in, even a couple, was uh, executed and uh, described in uh, Lunenburg, which was the first uh, tribe of perpetrators and uh, twelve 12 uh, sentenced to death by hanging. Among them was Hilda Gris well.
2: When you hear of somebody being lucky in the likes of Bergen-Belsen, you may very well question as to how this is possible. In Tomy's case, it certainly was. He was blessed to be surrounded by three powerful women whose huge strength of character was matched by their will to survive this terrible ordeal. There was his mother Judith, his aunt Margot, and his grandmother Rosalia. Tomy, his brother Mikey, and his first cousin Chava can thank all three for surviving Bergen-Belsen and being set free. Unfortunately, his grandmother Rosalia did not make it.
3: Yeah, first of all unfortunately we lost my grandmother in uh, Belgium-Belsen. It was on the 7th of March 1945 uh, just before the liberation. She just dried up and she didn't eat. She was like a skeleton and she gave up and she passed away. We have a little memorial there for my grandmother and I was just recently in Belgium-Belsen in February. This was my fourth or fifth time and at least we have a place we go to always visit this plaque commemorating my grandmother there. Well, the usual thing was in Belgium, Belgium, people were dying every day. Uh, from the beginning it was a sort of small number, maybe 50, 60 a day. The mercury was just in uh, front of us and um, during the day there would be the Zonda commander, the special commando that comes from the men's camp uh, they would go from hut to hut, there were about 80 huts uh, and they would ask if anybody died in the hut and they would lead them and uh, they would pick them up one by leg, one by hand and they had this cart, they would throw it into the cart and go fair till the cart was uh, full, then the lot was brought into the mortuary and they would then continue. After sort of February, people began to die in the 100. It was estimated about 500 a day. Previously, the dead were brought to the crematoria. We had a crematoria in uh, Belgium, Belgium, but it was only used to burn the corpses. But of course, when these large numbers were dying, the crematoria couldn't cope with it and therefore the corpses were just left outside and of course this was the experience. As children we used to play games among these corpses. They were all lying all around us, little sort of groups of, of 30, 40 corpses. We used to play hide and seek and hiding behind the
2: corpses. Because of the close bond that Tommy had with his grandmother, her death for a nine-year-old boy was traumatic. But it was an after death that the greatest shock for Tommy came when every bit of due dignity was denied this lovely woman.
3: You know, this woman, my grandmother Rosalia, she was the one that used to tell me stories, and she used to spoil me. She used to bake beautiful cake, and we used to go in the morning, and uh, she would uh, give it to us and things. So I, she was for us. Uh, more than a mother, you know. Of course, when we wa- woke up, uh, I see my mother and my uh, aunt crying, and I ask them, what happened, and they tell me that my grandmother passed away. So this morning, this zone uh, de commando come into the room. They did all the time, and uh, he had to strip my grandmother, and I never forget this. Like a little baby, she was just uh, nothing. Just uh, you could see all her ribs and everything and it it was a terrible sight and they picked up like a piece of rug worn by rag and worn by a hand and they threw her onto the cart and they filled the cart and threw them all onto a pile of boxes outside. And as a child, here we were sitting and we were watching all this front of us, what was happening. I mean, it was just uh, horrible. I but I still carry this feeling. Uh, of of terrible she was treated and no didn't know nothing and um you know, that the, all, all of us sat there, and when she was taken out, nobody moved, and, and just taking in what happened in front of us, and then I suddenly tore away and ran out. I wanted to see where my grandmother was buried, but of course, she was buried on one of the piles and the other corpses. That was the end of it, and it's just something I will carry till the end of my days. My and my aunt Margaret and my two sisters, they were such characters, so strong. For example, my mother, she never showed any sadness. She always smiled, she always made a feel that everything's all right. I mean, I was never taught for anything that's going on, so everything that happened was always a surprise to me. And of course, as a child, I was nine years old. Today, nine years old, it's uh, much more advanced. They, they know much more. They know all, everything, what's going on. At the time, we were so innocent. We didn't know anything about what's going on all around. And we were not taught deliberately not to frighten us. But my mother, she was the one that I never felt. Every night when we went to bed, uh, she would come and kiss us and she would say, and she would smile and she would say, don't worry, we will get through We said, just keep strong. Everything will be all right. And it was something that probably gave us the strength to survive.
2: Coming up next, Aunt Margot takes control and gains meagre benefits for the family, but not without risk. Lady Luck again intervenes and saves all from the gas chambers, and a planned meeting with one of Tomy's captors fails to materialise, and why it was for the better. Part 3, inspiration from the past, concludes after the break. After the passing of his grandmother, Rosalia, it was now left to Tomy's mother, Judith, and his aunt, Margot, to look after him, his brother, Mikey, and his first cousin, Margot's daughter, Chava. But if anybody could be relied upon to keep things together, it would be Margot. And she was about to get a position of responsibility, which in turn would be accompanied by some meagre benefits. But this position of responsibility was not without its risks.
3: person. She was, uh, what to say, like a man, but she was a very strong character. And um, she became the leader of the hunt. And the way it happened, when we came to Belgium, belsen uh, we had to go to a role call. Now, you can imagine, it had to be like, like army. You have these old people, mother and children. So when we were told to stand in four rows like soldiers. Nobody knew how to do it. And my aunt just grabbed everybody by shoulders and said, you stand here and then he's a commander this man with several women and soldiers come to sort of uh, inspect us and everything. So my aunt doing this, he called and said, you speak German? And my aunt spoke perfect German I said, yes. So he said, come here, you will be the leader of this hut, but you will be responsible for everything that happened. If anything happened that shouldn't happen, you will be responsible and you will be punished. It was very frightening we were standing there, but because she was uh, the leader of the hut, we had this advantage that we got a room, well, she got a room. Which was just uh, the hut was built like a bit on each side, about uh, uh, two large room and this little room where the where the responsible person, what they called elder of the block would be and this is how the blocks were built and in this little room we managed to put six beds and so we were with my aunt margot and we had this uh, luxury that we didn't sleep in one bed but there were single bed and we were separated more privacy whereas in this big room there were 30 40 people as you were exposed to everybody else there were bone beds and things. So that was the bones, that we were sort of separate and uh, it was more private. We had our room.
2: For those who do not believe in miracles, they will have a very difficult job convincing Tomi Raikental that they do not exist or happen. When you consider that the majority of Slovakian Jews who were sent to Auschwitz had barely set foot on the place when they were sent to the gas chambers, children included. When Tomy and his family were betrayed and arrested in Bratislava, it was to Auschwitz they were destined. But along the way, the train was diverted to Bergen-Belsen. Lady Luck had intervened again, and her work wasn't over yet.
3: In my research, I found out that the gas chamber in Auschwitz was blown up by the Germans themselves on the 7th of uh, November. Our transport went from the 2nd November. We arrived in Belgium, Belgium on the 9th of November. So the gas chamber was blown up on the 7th. We were the first transport from Slovakia with children, mother and old people that didn't go to Auschwitz. Because on the way, as we were traveling, the gas chamber were blown up, so the Germans obviously had no interest to bring us there. And we were diverted and we went to Bergen-Belsen. Normally the trip would have taken uh, two to three days maximum. But because of this uh, what happened in the middle of the uh, travel, they had to divert us. Obviously they didn't know where to send whether only my. Eventually, we landed in Belgium, Belgium. So, yeah, I was, we were lucky. I, yeah, what can I say? Somebody was looking onto us from above that we didn't go to our Auschwitz.
2: It would be foolish to reckon that just because you escaped the gas chambers, you were home and dry. There were other obstacles in Bergen-Belsen which were just as formidable. Disease, starvation, and without proper clothing, the sub-zero temperatures would be enough to kill you alone. People were literally dying on their feet every single day, and there was another enemy. Hordes of rats were waiting to attack those who were too weak to defend themselves. So how exactly a nine-year-old boy, his older brother, his first cousin, his mother and his aunt survived all of this has to be, yes, a miracle.
3: Belgium-Belsen Belgium was not extermination camp, but in Belgium-Belsen Belgium, people were dying. It is estimated that, that uh, about 20,000 soldiers died there and about 50,000, most of them Jews, 70,000 people died in Belgium-Belsen, Belgium. not because they were executed or they were put in gas chambers. People died from starvation, disease, typhus. Typhus was the biggest killer in Belgium, Belgium. Uh, starvation and, and cold. It was a torture in Belgium belsen Belgium. I always said that when we sort of met with my brother and with my cousin, we sort of uh, spoke among ourselves and we, we were saying, how did we survive? What do we take for granted? You know, people, you, you get up in the morning doing your business, washing yourself, going to work and all this. Everything in Belgium and Belgium was difficult, dirty, starving, cold. The life was just horrible. Uh, Even the dying was uh, terrible because it wasn't something that uh, you were sick for a week and you... Died. You lived for weeks and months, and you were dying. It was a very painful death. So in Bergen-Belsen, Belgium, Belgium, the inmates would run towards the perimeter, starting to climb on the perimeter. Of course, the guard, there was that, uh, the tower every 300 meters. They would discover you, and they would shoot you. Uh, we would hear the shots being fired during the night, and in the morning, we would find, And the corpse is only in our section where we lived every night, two or three, sometimes four, were shot. And we just found them lying over the barbed wire. They couldn't escape. They know that they couldn't escape. But they just wanted to escape from this torturous pain that they suffered from the starvation and the disease. And basically, they just wanted to end it. And that, that was the easy way out of it.
2: Auschwitz was liberated by the Red Army in January of 1945 and Bergen-Belsen by the British on the 15th of April the same year. The Russians did not treat the 7,000 or so prisoners who remained in Auschwitz with kid loves. A prime example would be Cecilia or Silke Klein, who at 16 years of age was forced to become a sexual slave for an SS officer at Auschwitz. The Russians later charged her with collaborating with the enemy and she was sentenced to 15 years at a labor camp in Siberia. She served ten and, by all accounts, led a happy life afterwards. Lally Sokolov, who featured in our first programme, described her as the bravest person he had ever met. If you need inspiration, then read Silke's Story by Heather Morris, who also featured on our first programme. Well, many believed at the time that what they were hearing of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen was propaganda. This American soldier was no exception until he discovered at first hand that it wasn't. This is from the documentary Liberators and Survivors, The First Moments. U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Horace Evers was among the first Allied soldiers to enter Adolf Hitler's abandoned
1: Munich quarters. He discovered Hitler's personal stationery. He crossed out Adolf Hitler, inserted his own name, and wrote a letter home about the camp he had seen just outside of Munich. Dearest Mom and Lou, A railroad runs alongside the camp, and as we walked toward the boxcars on the track, I thought of some of the stories I previously had read about Dachau, and was glad of the chance to see for myself, just to prove once and for all, that what I had heard was propaganda. But no, it wasn't propaganda at all. If anything, some of the truth had been held back. In two years of combat, you can imagine I have seen a lot of death, furious deaths mostly. But nothing has ever stirred me as much as this. The first boxcar I came to had about 30 what were once humans in it. Bodies on top of each other. No telling how many. And then into the camp itself. Filthy barracks. How can people do things like that? I never believed they could. Until now.
2: Nobody was allowed to leave Bergen-Belsen immediately as they posed a risk of spreading disease on the outside. While the Reichenthals were in Bergen Belsen, Tommy's father was arrested, but jumped and escaped from a speeding train and later fought with the resistance movement when liberation did come, neither he nor they knew whether each other had perished or survived and then one day in Bergen Belsen, there was good news
3: I Old. It must have been uh, sort of end of May that this uh, post guard camp, because we were kept in the camp after the liberation in quarantine, because uh, they were afraid to let us out in, in case we spread uh, typhoid. was, for example, a very contagious illness, that we spread uh, the illness among the civilian population outside. So we were there till um, June, to June. Every camp back to Slovakia, must be end to June, beginning of July, and uh, of course we were reunited, Uh, just incredible, the the house was all painted, there was a big table with food on the table, the village people were all around, they welcomed us, it was just incredible uh, event that we Miracle! All of us survived. Remember my aunt when she came, so we came together and her son survived, but her husband. He was 53 years old when he uh, died in Buchenwald. When she came and she put arm around her son, he was about 16, and she said, where where is Jula? Where is Jula? Jula Jula was her uh, husband. And he said, I I tell you, I tell her, he wouldn't want to tell her. Only later on he told her that he, uh, he was
2: murdered in Buchenwald. After all, Tommy Reichenthal and his family had been through and survived, and the 36 other family members who didn't, he certainly would be forgiven if he had been harboring feelings of hostility and anger towards his captors for the past 70 years. But not so.
3: Hatred makes you angry, makes makes you unhappy. And I sort of took the line, there is no point to to do like this, to be like this. I don't carry any hatred because if you carry any hatred or revenge, you suffer. The people that you hate and and what they did and everything, they don't even know. So not to forget, you can't forget, but um, you have to look into the future and not uh, to the past. And therefore, you know, I'm I'm sure you know that I wanted to meet actually one of the perpetrators. Uh, He stood the trial, this trial at the end of the war they conducted in Lunenburg. And um, I wanted to meet and not... To forgive her, I can't forgive her, but uh, perhaps to make some reconciliation, some closure for me and perhaps for her. In the end, it didn't happen. I'm glad it didn't happen because I found out that she is one of these uh, deniers. And that was the biggest regret. I thought after all this time, she must have realized what she did was wrong. And um, they thought that they doing what they doing was right. And uh, I sort of uh, many times was thinking myself. I said, uh, what I would have done if I would have been born into a German family and, and being indoctrinated from age of uh, twelve, hating uh, the Jews and what evil the Jews are bringing onto the world and everything. Not everything
2: is black and white. The book I was a Boy in Belson by Tommy Reichenthal is published by the O’Brien Press. Thank you Tommy for joining us on where the Road Takes speed this evening. My sincere appreciation to you likewise for sharing time with us and to Graham Martel, who was unsound. I hope you got inspiration from the people who featured on Inspiration from the Past. And if you are involved in lockdown, cocooning, or self isolation at the moment, the mental resolve of the people featured on these three programs will be of help to you. Until Sunday evening next at 7, from myself, John Green, have a safe week and goodbye for now.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.